0: Hearing all about, why do all those people shout? Hear 'em bing bang banging on old bells. It can't be Hoover, can't be Ford. Everybody's running for. Must be Lindbergh or the Prince of Wales. Is that him passing by? Say, folks, I know that guy. He's a big, big man from the south. Yes, a great big man from the south. He's got a big cigar stuck in his mouth. I know that he comes from the
1: South. Welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, our auxiliary podcast posting on the third Sunday of the month. In each episode, we will present a discussion of a story as an addendum to our HP Lovecast or a discussion of an independently selected story. We may also interview creators such as writers and artists in the horror and or horror fantasy genres. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture, with special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. I am
2: Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. This episode's musical intro and outro is from Palestine's Orchestra, and it is an excerpt from the 1930s song, The Man from the South with a Big Cigar in His Mouth. Check our show notes for a link to the complete song at archive.org. In today's episode, our special guest is Robert Atone. Born and raised in Long Island, New York, Robert is the author of two collections of short stories, The 2019 People, a horror anthology about love, loss, life, and things that go bump in the night, and this autumn's release of Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares, both from the publisher Spooky House Press. Robert is an author, teacher, and cigar enthusiast, and he delights in the creepy.
1: Welcome, Robert, to the show. It's nice to have you here with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Robert, can... um, I think what we'll do is we'll start off a little bit with um, getting a better understanding of your background and your writing journey. And uh, typically, we know that authors are originally readers. So what were a few of your earliest literary favorites?
3: Sure. Uh, Yeah, some of my earliest literary favorites. I, I read... Less Than Zero by Bret Easton Ellis when I was in eighth grade Um, and I fell head over heels in love with Ellis's writing. I still adore Ellis's writing. I don't write in first person but all of my early stuff um, was first person because I was very much so trying to emulate him which I think every author kind of does when they start writing they try to emulate the people they love and uh so that he was really the first author. I was like, this is my guy. This is who I, this is who I love. This is who I can really connect to everything. And you know, I loved reading in school. I, I, I'm an English teacher now. So I, I've always loved reading, but it was always Brett Easton Stanellis, number one, um, and Jay McInerney also. Uh, Bright Lights, Big City is great. Ransom, Ransom is probably my favorite um, by him, but also uh, Chuck Palahniuk, of course, um, I think I'm the only person who prefers Survivor over Fight Club. And that's, I guess that's fine. I love Survivor so much. Um, I just see that uh, novel so vividly in my head when I read it. And then I discovered Mark Danielewski and House of Leaves. And that was really the first horror novel I ever read. And that really has stayed with me in a big way. And uh, I know it's not an original thing to say that, but House of Leaves is just such a masterpiece. And I, I never read, I, I own actually, within the past year, I read my first Stephen King fiction novel.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I never read, I read on writing. I read on writing in high school mm-hmm. and loved it. And it's like, well, this is, you know, and I've taken writing classes and it's like, why would I use these other textbooks when we have the most commercially successful author of all time giving us manna from the gods? Like we don't need <clears throat> anything else. Um, the hero's journey is innate in all of us. We see it everywhere. We don't need that anymore. But um, so I read that and I just read thinner um, within the past year and I loved it. But um, I will say King is definitely an influence just um, for the world building, I would say, alone. So, um, yeah, those are those are the ones I, I'm, I'm a huge Brian Evanson fan. I love Brian Evanson, John Langan, a uh, huge fan of John Langan and uh, Jim Chambers. I'm just giving you names, yeah. I'm sorry. But yeah, Jim Chambers is a, an influence for sure. I really admire him. Like and, James uh, Chambers? Yeah. yeah, I'm. we're friendly, so I call him Jim.
2: Okay, <laughs> well, just, here's the deal. Uh, it could be the King in Yellow Chambers, or it could be, right. you know. Engines to Sacrifice Chambers. Just want to make sure, because we we all know uh, James Chambers, uh, Cold check and everything. He's an awesome guy. Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's awesome. He actually got me into the HWA. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. um, Very cool. And uh, he's in my, I I shouldn't say, he's in my super secret critique group. So.
1: Uh, (laughs) Okay. All right.
2: Well, since those are some, you know, literary favorites and literary influences, yes. what about films? You know, what are you into and what do you uh, derive from yourself?
3: I think uh, when it comes to, I, I was very lucky. My parents didn't withhold anything from me growing up. I wasn't like sheltered and like only watched Disney. Like I actually hate Disney, um, but I like the Mandalorian. That's about it. So, <laughs> <I don't. laughs> but you know, other than that. But I I didn't watch, you know, of course I watched children's stuff too, but, you know, I would watch Forbidden Planet, which is my favorite movie of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, later on, when I became older and read uh, The Tempest, I was like, wait a minute, these are the same thing. Um, So I love that. But, uh, you know, my parents exposed me to Godzilla 85, which um, I will always hold in my heart as my favorite Godzilla movie because it was like the first one that I really saw. Um, Halloween it was one of my dad's favorite movies, and I I grow up, I grew up and I live on Long Island. We stay away from the water because of Jaws. Uh, Jaws was you know that was that was kind of uh, formative for me. I still don't like the beach. Um, I don't think I'm ever going to like the beach, but uh, The Exorcist, things like that. I really I gravitate more towards the '70s era of horror, the stuff with nuance. Um, I, I just I love that. I love the creeping dread. Were were you into 70's like kind of seventies
2: grindhouse horror then?
3: My girlfriend is. Okay. And she she will show me some of the, the, the gory or grindhousey stuff. And I appreciate it. It's not if I'm going if I'm choosing like uh Horror House on Highway Five <laughs> or The Exorcist, I'm gonna reach for the Exorcist every time. <laughs> but it's uh it, it is enjoyable for sure but like i don't know do you consider the texas chainsaw massacre would you consider that grindhouse maybe absolutely yeah i it, i mean i do love texas chainsaw it,
2: it's its roots are definitely an exploitation and grindhouse but it's also one of those few grindhouse films that's had decades of reevaluation and reappraisal that it kind of blurs the you know once you kind of reach that kind of uh Level of reconsideration. Grindhouse all of a sudden becomes a dirty word to use on such a film like that, and yeah. I don't necessarily agree with that. Its no. its roots are firmly Grindhouse, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. just, just curious.
3: Yeah, and and you could also I guess you could make that um you can make that really that argument for just about any horror movie if it has oh. connections to Grindhouse in some way, not just Texas Chainsaw, but you could certainly look at like Black Christmas.
2: Oh, and maybe make that. Or you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, if you go on like Wikipedia and look up like what would be considered classic legendary horror films like John Carpenter's the thing, almost mm-hmm. every section at the bottom of Wikipedia will have like a critical reception section. And all these films will all say, when this movie came out everyone hated it, it was yeah. terrible, no one liked the way it shot, and then they'll have that paragraph underneath it, subsequent re-evaluations say, classic, one of the greatest films ever made, and you see that for The Thing, and Black Christmas, yeah. and Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre, and so on and so forth.
3: It's true, and and especially The Thing, it's so weird to think, like, how did people not go completely bonkers for that movie when it came out? I mean, I wasn't, I don't know. Like, I I had watched The Thing, both versions of The Thing growing up, and I loved both equally. I love The uh, the Thing from Another World is very clearly a masterpiece, but John Carpenter's The Thing is also very obviously a masterpiece. So to me, while, they're, while one's technically a remake of the other, and I'll even go a step further, I like the 2011 The Thing also, the one that serves as a prequel to John Carpenter's because the director's intention was to do everything practical and Universal undercut him and said, no, it's cheaper to do it with computers. Mm -hmm. So I really admire a filmmaker wanting to do the right thing and actually turning out a very solid remake or prequel, whatever you want to say. So you have three movies of the thing. All of them, well, two of them are like perfect. And one of them is very, very good.
2: Did you ever see? It came out about maybe three years ago. A movie called The Void. Yes. That yes. Oh, good. Okay, because that's yeah. John Carpenter classic style done yes. with practical effects. It's basically the thing in the hospital. <laughs>
3: it is, and it's it's got that Lovecrafty element too, which I oh, love, yeah. and it's uh it was also crowdsourced on uh, I think it was on Kickstarter. The Void, um, which I love. I, I, I remember watching that and being like, I just, I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And I was like, let's just watch this finally. And I just sat there, just riveted the whole time. I was like, wow, I wish more people did stuff like this. I would back more things on Kickstarter.
1: Yeah, we, we felt the same way when we when we saw it as uh, too, because we got to see it at the theater um, and it was just, oh, cool. it was fantastic. Yeah, we have a, an independent theater um, in the next town over. And so we would, go and watch some of those films so we were fortunate to actually get to see it on the big screen i would love to
3: see that on the big screen i think seeing that in the drive-in would be a lot of fun too
1: oh yeah especially since those are coming back it you know it
2: it it, it's not it has the look of a throwback film but i wouldn't kind of consider it a throwback 80s film it's like shades of stranger things but Mm -hmm. not quite there but it definitely feels like an 80s horror film without being full-on Outrun synthwave style
1: yeah, they, made, um, they made it really kind of like timeless <laughs> in, in a way I yeah. mean that that I think that film well um, stand the test of time because of of their approach, the <laughs> storytelling the the minimalism of, of it, and the practical effects i I think they actually did a great job
3: what was the critical response to the void so now we know what to expect the opposite twenty
2: years ago <laughs> yeah really you know I think. <laughs> I think the general consensus, it was good. I know I read a couple where at the end it kind of broke down when they're, like, when they're in the basement fighting, you know, hordes of zombies where it kind of lost its focus. And I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. But
3: hmm. I, I always I'm, think of like, I, I always try to remember, you know, what, what are the movies we're going to be talking about 10, 15, 20 years from now? And I'm still waiting. And this is like a total weird aside, but I'm still waiting for people to come around on Reign of Fire. The dragon movie with christian bale and uh Matthew mcconaughey do you remember that movie okay.
1: so A long time ago so <laughs> i want to
2: help you with that because my current book project is on neo middle evil not me neo middle medievalism <laughs> uh films and tv shows basically medieval films and tv and video game stuff made in the 2000s and onward basically new oh, cool. millennials millennium stuff I can't say that. And which Reign of Fire is. It's a total yeah. neo medievalism illism. Oh, okay, I'm aborting this book <laughs> if I can't even say it. So, I'm, so I, I got one more film question because I know we got a lot of stuff to, to talk about, but you mentioned Forbidden Planets, one of your favorite films ever. Mm-hmm. I do. Have no, you seen uh, the theatrical version of by play i mean by play return to forbidden planet i
3: I've, I've seen a video production of it when okay. i was younger somebody gave my dad a videotape and i watched it i don't I, know how they got it
2: i love it i mean i saw a production of it over in uh uh, near uh, LA. What?
1: Santa Clarita. Santa Clarita. When I was being interviewed yeah. at that one store.
2: I, I never like, you know, in that Rocky horror fashion, never laughed so much to see Forbidden Planet retold with surf rock music. <laughs> <laughs> My dream is to um, to someday
3: see a very classy, well done remake of Forbidden Planet. I know that that sounds like sacrilegious and I know Spielberg was trying to do it like 20 years ago, but I think it's something that could definitely be done really well nowadays, especially if, if, if one continues to take the idea of uh, unbridled science and pure creation and carry that further. Um, it, that's still fertile ground to play with. Like, I, I love that. I, I think it's such a, a, a creepy idea and uh, it could very easily be done.
1: I, I would say that the, one of the films that I always hope that they'll remake is Soylent Green yes. because it's been oh, yeah. so long and now that punchline yep. uh, could work again.
2: Oh, yeah, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Soylent Green suffered from te- wonderful idea, terrible e- execution. Um, it
1: it had Charles de
2: terrible execution,
3: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Edgar G. Robinson too. You can't, you know, yeah, the top end.
1: <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I,
2: I could see that movie remade now with modern day filming techniques and technology. And, and you and know what? You science. did it with you did it with uh, Planet of the Apes, and it worked. Yeah. You could do it, and Green.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I think that the science would be definitely very interesting oh yeah as well,
3: it? and also you know the idea of like people are actively we're always seeking newer ways to consume our daily allotment of calories and vitamins and all of that so you know you can make the the play of like oh well this is a thing for people on the go and it's like <laughs> oh yeah it's just a shake boom and it's like that's mm, people
2: but <laughs> yeah they really have that though there is a shake product called soylent
3: i used and to drink is. it oh I used to drink it. I used to, that, that and there was another one, Amber Night. I used to mix the two up, and I would drink them all the time. They both tasted terrible. <laughs> <laughs> they awful.
1: I think, Nick, didn't you try a soy once? I did. Once?
2: Well, we have a writer friend, and that's all he drinks. He doesn't eat wow. anything else. And of course, he's not even in that good of health, but regardless, I'm like, I'll try one of those, because I'm curious. Oh, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost as bad as, I had like a, a long time ago, you know, I had to do an MRI or something, and I had to drink like this thing to help, you know, image my insides, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, their, their flavors were terrible or strawberry and terrible, and I went strawberry <laughs> and terrible, but it was like <laughs> drinking like liquid chalk. Yeah, uh,
3: I, I, barium, right? Isn't it barium? Yeah, that's
2: exactly, it was barium. That's what Soylent reminded me of, it, barium, yeah. just a Ugh. flavorless white, bleh.
1: And, yeah, and, he, and you had to drink the entire bottle, didn't you? Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> it was bad. So. Well, um, that was a great foray into, <laughs> into films. So we'll, we'll rein it back in um, and uh, focus in on, on the writing. And do you recall when you first started thinking about writing seriously? Um, you know, and was that kind of a gradual process or, you know, was it just this... epiphany one month one one day
3: yeah uh i I had written um all through high school and college and i was very lucky right after well yeah right after college i had the um the disney screenwriting fellowship for a year and a half which was a lot of fun and um i didn't the only things that i wrote at the time were horror movies which they gave me feedback on which was really nice that it was great but I mostly was looking at things and punching them up and determining whether or not it it could go to the next step or whatever. So that was pretty much what that was. So that was, it was really cool. It was great experience. And then um, I didn't think, I I had a play that I wrote performed in LA here in New York and a couple places and in Alaska, which I did not go to. And it was just, that was a nice little bit of success that a play that I wrote was performed. And, Then I just went into the private sector as a journalist and copywriter. And that was fine until clickbait became a thing. Mm -hmm. And I went from investigating the Long Island serial killer to being asked to investigate uh, the Kardashians, like to write clickbait articles about them. And I'm (laughs) like, it's not for me. And uh, then I, I went into copywriting and social media and then I became a teacher. So um, I wasn't really writing for myself during that time of private sector and teaching work. And then in 2019, uh, my dad passed away and that really lit a lot of emotional fire in me. And I I was seeing a therapist, I'm still seeing a therapist and I put a lot of my emotion and feelings into my writing because I just felt I needed to, I needed to get it out. And that was my first collection. Mm-hmm. and now i and i i was very happy with how that turned out it got me into the hwa and uh from there i've just been writing ever since and i'm i'm you know submitting and and getting into anthologies and i've got this new collection and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of fun but it was definitely like i had always written in the past different formats screenwriting and playwriting and then i just wanted to get my emotions out because of losing my dad so that was uh that was really the biggest you know that's the worst thing that's ever happened to me and it's probably the biggest moment that's ever happened in my life and exploring that through fiction was very cathartic
1: so Mm -hmm. yeah no that makes sense um what do you think is the burst the best and the worst aspects of being a writer
2: Except for the clickbait thing. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> obviously that's that's some of the worst, but. Uh...
2: <laughs> I think that the best
3: part of uh, being a writer is getting to hear people's thoughts on your work and, and um, seeing how people interpret certain things. I've seen that with this new collection, things that I, I didn't even really think about. People are extrapolating from the work, so that's really exciting. And then uh, the worst part, is probably, um, I don't know. I think, I guess the worst part is probably like, what's the worst part of writing? Oh, I guess, okay. So I'm a teacher and I go to work and I'm very helpful and I like to be sweet and nice just (laughs) because like, I enjoy where I work. I like my coworkers. I I love my students. I love my boss. Telling them I'm a horror writer, it's the reaction is you really meanwhile my girlfriend's like yeah him like he's a mother, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, but just i guess telling you know d- dealing with the straights let's say <laughs> like hearing that people you know some some of my coworkers have come to my readings and stuff and they're like yeah that story was really gross and um i it was really dark and i never imagined that and i'm just like oh maybe Thank it's you. not for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, and, and all I can think of in my head is like, man, if they only listened to some splatterpunk stories, what would they think? But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I guess that's probably the worst thing is people just being like, having, seeing some people's reactions. I had a friend ask me after he read the novella in this collection, he was like, can't you write anything nice? Can't you just write a puff piece? <laughs>
2: Are you talking about that that story was nice you had you know a social media type girl who's trying to you know look for you know a friend in someone and it, that, it was nice yeah see that's see? my interpretation too. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the subject of you know your writing because you've got two collections so you, two collections a lot of stories a lot of characters a lot of themes but what would you say about your writing is like your your auteur element. You know what, what is what is distinctly you in your writing?
3: Uh, I would say my dialogue. I really when I I, I met Brad Easton Ellis at a bookstore here on Long Island, out in the Hamptons, when Imperial Bedrooms came out, and you know he did like a Q and A. He did a reading, he did a Q and A, and he took pictures. And my picture, I'm holding his waist, and he looks very unhappy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I did that, but I did. <laughs> it's such an awkward picture. But um, he, in his Q&A, somebody asked about writing dialogue. Because, I mean, you guys have read Alice, I'm sure, like, you know his dialogue is pitch perfect. So in my head, if you're going to listen to somebody talk about dialogue, he's the one. So he said eavesdrop on people. Just eavesdrop on conversations. Pay attention to how people speak, their cadence, all of that. The words uh, choice, all of that. So I take that into my everyday life as well. So I'll be out at a restaurant and I'll just be listening to somebody across the room and that'll inform my writing. So I think my dialogue, I'm not saying it's like Breddy Ellis level or anything, but I think my dialogue is distinctly me.
1: No, that's, and that's great advice for um, individuals that are listening to the show. You know, that's, that's great advice for for writers to um, gain an understanding of that cadence, but also to hear other, other voices besides what they're used to listening to. So that way they can expand on the dialogue options that they have.
3: Yeah. true. I, I was told, uh, in college once by a classmate that some of my characters were too same sounding and that really twisted me into a pretzel. Mm-hmm. And so it took like a year and a half, right after that Brady Stanellis thing, Maybe six months later, my dialogue, you know, because i had been practicing it and listening and stuff, just got light years better. Um, yeah. it, and it's it's so important to just like eavesdrop on people. It's not nice, but you got to do it.
2: Just, yeah. Just out of curiosity, since you're an Ellis dialogue fan, are you a fan of Mammoth's dialogue? I am very much
3: so. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: yeah. I, I will, you know, and, and it's funny. So to go from Mammoth, right? Like a lot of people look at, um, Who's the guy who wrote The West Wing? Aaron Sorkin, right? A oh, lot yeah. of People think, you know, Aaron Sorkin is sort of a modern day mammoth. I don't feel that way, though. So, yeah, like, I have always found like Aaron Sorkin's characters speak so terribly to each other. Everybody's competing to be the smartest guy in the room,
0: uh... and they're just
3: cutting each other down. Whereas Mammoth or Ellis, it feels very natural. It's punchy, mm-hmm. and these are very, you know, for the most part, fairly intelligent people speaking to one another, but it's never ugly as it is with the Sorkin story. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. That's just always been my interpretation. But yeah, I do love David Mamet and Ellis for sure. I, th-
1: I think that if you could visualize Mamet's dialogue as a dance, there there's mm-hmm. a grace and an eloquence about the way his dialogue works uh, between people. And, it, and it's almost like watching uh, a dance unfold and you're just, you're kind of caught up you know, instead of the visuals, you're caught up in the sounds and the way things are being delivered. It's very fascinating.
2: I'd say battle dance. If you ever saw a production of Oliana, battle dance. Yeah. <laughs> I think
3: um, a perfect example of that is in The Untouchables when um, Sean Connery's character, when they're on the stakeout in Canada, and Sean Connery's character is going to each and every one of his uh, partners and he gives them a little bit of something. You know, he's like, you're cold? Cool, stomp your feet. Just stamp your feet like that. And he goes and he checks another guy's gun and he gives him a little advice and then he sits down and tells them a story. Like, it's just, it's perfect. And it gives everybody a chance. And and I think that's a a true, that movie particularly is a a testament to Mamet because he left the project before the movie ended when they changed the ending and the ending is completely silent with no dialogue because of it. Mm -hmm. So... I just, I don't know, I, I love Mamet, I think he's brilliant. I know some people think he's cantankerous or whatever, but whatever, he's David Mamet, he can do whatever he wants.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
2: so You've mentioned, so you've got short story collections, you've done internet writing, and by that, I mean the whole breadth of it, journalism yeah. and screen uh, writing and playwriting. So is there like any type of writing, be it medium or genre that you haven't done that you kinda wanna tackle next?
3: I, uh, I did a podcast about the Long Island serial killer, and I think it would be a lot of fun to do a fiction podcast series um, similar to the uh, Video Palace, the Shudder Video Palace series, which was amazing. They have a book out that's connected to that now, um, but something like that or something like the uh, um, Oh My God Award that the BBC did. Uh, did you listen to that?
2: No, we have it. It's first time us hearing it.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah. It was uh, It was called Voices from Gilgo and uh, it was about the, the Gilgo Beach slash Long Island Serial Killer uh, case that happened here. It's still unsolved. It's actually the reason that Craigslist does not have uh, the classified sex ads anymore because um, <laughs> they they called the Long Island Serial Killer the Craigslist Killer also. Yikes. Oh, wow. Yeah, there, there was a movie on Netflix about it called Lost Girls. Um But yeah, that's a thing. Uh, So I did a podcast about that true crime thing. But I would really like to do a a fiction podcast. I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, Video Palace by Shudder is an influence on my want to do that. The Charles Dexter Ward podcast from BBC, um, which I I thought was incredible. But uh, I would love to explore fiction in a serialized podcast format.
2: It is kind of amazing how in the past – Fifteen years, the concept of podcasting has really grown to its own media. That people are really doing some, not just interviewing or anything, but to explore it as a a viable dramatic format.
3: I agree. Um, there's a, a a podcast did a, a an audio play version of one of my stories and. I was like, this is the only way that I could ever see this story now because he just took my material and just elevated it so beautifully with his narration and his, his vocal work. Um, I was just really floored by it. So to see, and that's a one man operation doing that. It's just so impressive to me. And, and I know um, it's not easy, certainly to, to produce a podcast, like doing it all yourself is difficult and it's not, you know, the two of you and everything. It's not easy. It's time-consuming and whatnot, but I think when it comes out excellent, it stands, you know, head and shoulders above so many others.
1: I I would agree with that. I I think your podcast idea sounds really fascinating. Um, That that would be definitely a good one to explore. Um, I hadn't ever heard of the Long Island uh, Killer Craigslist or Craigslist uh, killer. So definitely have to take a look into that. I'm always fascinated by that. I, I really love true crime. so. Oh, nice. um, but um, outside of your writing craft, what, what do you think is the most useful skill that you've learned from being an author?
3: I think research. I've gotten very adept at research. Um, you know, being a teacher obviously helps that too, but I love the research process of writing. And I actually especially love the revision process editing process of writing but well, i know a lot of people don't i don't really i mean to me i don't get why but i think um really being able to research and dive in and uncover some weird stuff that's a lot of fun and that really informed the novella in my collection i really went deep into the the ancient goetic teachings the lesser key of solomon and stuff like that and um my editor lewis is he is catholic and he was like, are you gonna be worshiping like deities from beyond the veil now? Like, do I have to worry about you? Uh, and I was like, no, but <laughs> it is cool, man. Listen to this.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: Um, but I, I, I love the research process. I'm actually, I'm doing a lot of research now um, on, I'm working on my first horror novel. I'm, I'm, I'm in second revision on a YA novel. But after that, I'm starting my first full-length horror novel, and I'm going to work on a novella at the same time. So I'm, I'm in the research stage of the novel right now.
1: Great. So we'll have to chat a little bit of that, about that a little later in, in our conversation. Um, I'm always curious because I, I have a real problem with, like, basically stopping the research and getting to the writing. <laughs> so... Um, what have you found to help you to kind of get over that as well? And, you know, because we can get lost in the rabbit holes and things like that, so how do you as a writer get over that?
3: I think when I find myself in a totally different section of what I was looking into, that's when I'm like, all right, we're done here. Um, You know, for example, like, there's a story that references Dagon in my collection, and you know, in, in researching Dagon and, and, you know, rewatching the movie Dagon and rereading certain things. Once I started getting into other Lovecraftian gods and other Lovecraftian creations and stuff, I was like, that's when I knew I needed to just kind of navigate back and really kind of <laughs> focus on, you know, the aquatic elements and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. uh, that's when I knew. So I, for me, as soon as I start navigating away from something that's totally disparate to what I started with, then I know I'm in trouble.
1: Mhm. Yeah. And you know, with the pandemic, um now you're you're actually back teaching at the school, um but for many people they're still um shuttered like um we we're remote workers I am anyway. Um so I don't have a lot of interaction with other people. But what do you do, uh Robert to stay motivated and inspired with writing?
3: Uh, I think about the excitement of gearing up to release something and the excitement of being finished with something and that really fuels my fire a lot and I, I almost always write the ending first and then go to the, the you know I plot out the middle and then I start the beginning mm-hmm. so then um, once all of that starts to coalesce that's when I get really excited um, but that's how I kind of motivate myself <laughs>
1: Now, that's really interesting that you write the ending first. Um, we, it, Through our conversations with uh, our various guests, everybody seems to do something a little differently. I think you're the first one where we've heard that you write the ending first and then work backwards to to the beginning. So that's very fascinating.
3: Oh, well, yeah, I, I just, I like the idea of knowing where the story is going to go. I don't ever want to get lost um, in what I'm doing. And I, I actually... I did a, an experiment with this collection where I wrote one story, I had no plot, like no, not no plot, but no um, trajectory for it. And I didn't know where the ending was going. And people seem to really like that one. So maybe that's an exercise I should do more often, but for me, it was so stressful in writing it. Cause I was like, I don't like, where is this going? What is happening here? And, but, I, People like it and it's creepy to them. So, okay, mission accomplished. But that really stressed me out. I, I can't imagine how people do that all the time.
2: We hear from a lot of other writers, they, they like that. They want to see, you know, as they write where their characters wind up taking them, that like, oh, I'm yeah. shocked that my character did this. And so, yeah, I guess this is the difference between how much control you want over your writing or how much yeah. experimentation and where do you want it to go? And, you know, it's neither right or wrong. It's just different and they yield, you know, interesting and fun results, that's for sure.
3: I think there's, there's something to be said about exploring or letting characters explore certain parts or dialogue choice or whatever. But I just, I got to know at the end of the day, what happens to these people? I have to know, like, if this person ends up here at point C and they are the last person standing... Then I can't, I can't let another character be take center stage at some point. If I need this character to make it all the way, so I, I, I can understand like the excitement of it. Like I, I am, you know, the oh, you a plotter or a pantser or whatever. And it's like I'm definitely a plotter, but I also like pencil mm-hmm. tiny bit with things as I go throughout. But that one story was all pants, and it it made <laughs> me so nervous.
2: <laughs> oh. You can always take the Stephen King approach and just nuke everyone and start over. That's true <laughs> so, one final question, this kind of on the personal stuff before we transition to your work proper cool. in your bio you say you're a cigar enthusiast
3: oh big time
2: okay I, I i'm just I'm curious do you you know what got you into that? is that why is it important to you? Do some of your characters smoke cigars and when you have a successful story do you celebrate with a cigar all over the <laughs> map here all of that all of those things um yes
0: when
3: i finish a story that i'm particularly happy with i do smoke a cigar absolutely cuz it's it's my it's the only vice that i really love like i you know i'll have a cocktail i'll you know i'll i'll drink with friends and stuff like that but i'm not like i'm not the solitary writer drinking whiskey and typing away like that's not my style i don't really i'm you know i'm not hemingway so like I, I do love cigars. I got into them in, right around, the, I was exploring wine with a friend. We got very into wine uh, one summer. And we're not like snobs with wine. And I'm not a snob with cigars. Like, I will smoke everything. There's certain brands that I just don't like. And I've, I've maybe had one cigar from their line that I really love. And I, the rest of them are garbage. But when we got into the wine, we wanted to pair it with cigars because the idea is that the bouquet and the smoke dancing on your palate brings each other out. And we really found that to be very much so true. And so we just got very into cigars. That transitioned to whiskey and cigars. I'm not a big whiskey guy, but I, I do. I love There's There's a company called Alec Bradley. They have a, a cigar called the Alec Bradley Gotham Torpedo. That's probably my favorite cigar of all time, it's just delicious. It's got a little bit of a velvety chocolate finish on the tongue. Um, it's You're very making me kink. want to
2: smoke.
1: I'm not even a smoker. Okay, Robert, <laughs> no more time. All
2: right, I'm sorry. Have, I'm sorry. I have enough <laughs> vices. I I I have the cocktail vice. I yeah. love mixology. But you oh, know, cool. but but you know, first and foremost, we're, we're film scholars over here, and there is something very. I don't know if it's the word is hot culture, but I'll go with it. But something about like a film noir type character or an affluent character, or a femme fatale or a pinup or something that's different between when you smoke a cigar versus a cigarette and it Mm -hmm. it conveys something, you know, it conveys something that's maybe more high class, more inaccessible, something other world worldly. I don't know. It's the difference between a character that drinks a beer, although Mm -hmm. that's, Not true anymore, because now, now beer yeah, is, yeah. Uh, you know, a huge industry of IPAs and, but, yep. you know, yeah. a Coors versus, you know, this, you know, finely rolled uh, cigar. So it, it's just an interesting, you know, vice that it has a lot of connotations to it. You don't yeah. walk down the street and see a cigar smoker anymore. You see cigarette smokers, you see vapors, but mm-hmm. when you see someone smoking a cigar, it stands out. There's, you, you want to ask them something, it, it communicates something. It, yeah. it does.
3: And, and when you think of, um, you know, some of the classic villains of literature, you think of Tom Buchanan from The Great Gatsby, and he is almost constantly smoking a cigar throughout that novel. And they, and they were smart to do it in the movie, the Leo uh, DiCaprio movie. Even when he gives one of his nastiest speeches, he's in the middle of lighting a cigar. And mm-hmm. he is, um, he's probably one of the greatest villains. But also you think like the Kingpin from Spider-Man, big cigar guy. You think uh, you know, Lex Luthor, big cigar guy. <laughs> it's always a bad guy thing. <laughs> I swear I'm not a terrible person, but I, I just love them. I just love the there's also a lot of beautiful craftsmanship in it as well. And and knowing that it's hand rolled and it's it's a beautiful cultural thing. Um the South American tradition of cigar is just beautiful. And it's it's just I Nicaraguan cigars are my favorite. I just uh beautiful it's just wonderful
1: i feel like when you when you see somebody smoking a cigar you know that they are it just sets them apart because you know it's a very it is a very purposeful thing and yeah. that you know they're going to know more about their cigar choices than if somebody picks if you see somebody with a cigarette that anybody could pick up so Yeah, Yeah. definitely.
2: What you just said there applies to women who wear seamed stockings. Oh, okay, Uh, absolutely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's and
3: cigars are also a a solid time commitment. Um, You know, you're gonna you're gonna need to allot at least an hour for (laughs) your average cigar. That's how long it takes. You know, you don't want, and it's also very poor etiquette to snuff it out. Um, You can't, if you need to go somewhere and like, oh, I can't do this anymore. You're not supposed to snuff it out. Very poor. You're not supposed to walk and smoke a cigar. Very poor etiquette.
1: Interesting. Um, I will mention one other person uh, or one other movie where I remember there being a cigar. And that is actually another uh, Leonardo uh, role in The Hateful Eight. His character smoked cigar as well. I That's thought you true. were going to
2: say Dina Carvey and Master of the Skies.
1: No, because I haven't seen that one. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to think, too.
3: Like, there's always, and, and, I mean, my favorite piece of media of all time is Watchmen by Alan Moore. And mm-hmm. the, the comedian is a big cigar guy, mm-hmm. and he is constantly chomping on a cigar. And he even says in the narrative at a certain point, he's like, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And when he meets his demise, he's smoking a cigar, watching TV. Um, I just, I I connect to that. Even though he is a monster, I do connect with that idea of like the commitment, the enjoyment And, and truly they do change flavor. A good cigar will change flavors on you throughout that hour. And it's really, it's almost like a symphony. A really good cigar will definitely bring out a lot of different emotions. I had two last night, two very different cigars. And, you know, we went from hay to dirt, which I, I know it sounds like you wouldn't like it, but it's earth. It's more earthy than it oh, is yeah. dirt. So hay to earth to almost like a caramel cream finish. Really remarkable how they can change like that. And that's all in the
2: craftsmanship of the roller. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully at the end of this podcast, you'll celebrate by having one yourself. <laughs> I, I honestly buy It's like 70 degrees
3: here today. so. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, on that delicious uh, smoky note, I think we'll uh, shift over to your to your writing projects. Um, the reason why um, I think we're here why, today, why we're here today. <laughs> and that is the fact that you have a brand new collection out called Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares. And so I thought we'd get started by maybe you tell us a little synopsis of the collection.
3: Tell sure. it to us. All right. Oh, okay. All right. So, you have fears, right? Um, so <laughs> this uh, this uh, collection features a novella that I'm very proud of. That's the title of the book, Her Infernal Name, and it's surrounded by, it's like 17 or 18 other short stories that are all centered around uh, fears that we all have. My first collection was all about emotion. This collection is about fear. I, I put as many of my own fears and concerns into this as I could. I have things about the economy. I have things about the environment. The environment is my number one fear. I don't, I don't, I'm not a person who has a lot of fears. I'm not saying that to be like a cool tough guy because I'm still terrified of flying, but I don't, I, I, these are concerns, you know? So I, I also have the fear of knowledge in there as well. There's a story in there that's all about knowledge. Um, and having too much of it and the burden of knowledge. And um, oh, yeah. so it's all mm-hmm. about fear. Yep. What's that?
1: No, just that I just re- said, I remember that story. It was very interesting because oh. it's kind of like, as, as scholars, I think we always try to aspire to have as much knowledge as possible and then to have this character who um, has it all. Um, Wait, and the- this isn't
2: the UFO story? Oh, nope. Not- uh, written- no. I'm just sorry because when- I, not to jump ahead, but the UFO story is—you know—she's trying to get some knowledge back. What happened to me? And now that she's—you know—okay. So anyway, never mind. Different story, no, but still yeah. creepy because, I, okay, uh, '90s. During during the '90s, <laughs> X Files is out. Fox had sightings. I was, you know, a like twelve-year-old kid. I lived and breathed UFO stuff. I lived in the boonies in Washington. That was the one thing that you know. Dracula, zombies, monsters, whatever, didn't scare me. My scary thing was getting abducted by a UFO.
1: Oh, the fire in the sky. Fire in the sky
2: is like most scariest film still.
1: It's terrifying.
2: So so that story, (laughs) Kelly Watched the Stars, is, I gotta ask real quick, Kelly Watched the Stars, is that title from an air song? Yep. Moon Safari album. Oh, I oh. knew it. I I'm a huge fan of Air, so when I Me saw too. that title, I'm like, that that that's got to be a reference to the the song from Moon Safari.
3: Yeah, it absolutely is. I uh, I used to have that record on vinyl. I gave it to a friend of mine, and I've I've always loved Air. And uh, so yeah, when I was thinking of um, a, uh, a a good name for it, I was like. Yeah, Kelly, watch the stars. It's perfect, and I just—I that's on the soundtrack that I made for the book. So, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely an influence. I'm so glad you got that. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, it a great song, and there's also some great remixes to it. There's a a movie called Splendor that's got a, mm-hmm. a variation of Kelly, watch the stars. Great soundtrack too. Oh, yeah, love air.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I guess you know, although we're gonna we would ask you about this uh, a little later on, but since you you brought it up, um, what is your specific soundtrack that you had while writing this book? And alternatively,
2: what do you want people to listen to when they read it?
1: Yeah.
3: I really uh, was very, the the needle drops that I reference in the book or in the collection are important, but I also emotionally, I think listening to uh, pseudo echo his eyes Uh, which is from one of the, I think it's from Friday the 13th, part five. Um, That song is featured in that movie. And that was just the song that I had playing a lot while writing it. Also, I'm really, and my girlfriend is very disappointed in me for this, but I've become a pretty big Fleetwood Mac guy. And (laughs) Fleetwood Mac has made it onto every soundtrack for everything that I've been writing since then, some sort of Fleetwood Mac needle drop. So Seven Wonders, Seven Wonders. Is definitely one of my favorite it's probably my favorite song by Fleetwood Mac and that's that that's something I want people to be listening to um god there's so many others I I also throw some Interpol on there I'm a huge Interpol fan they're probably my favorite band of all time um but yeah I definitely I, with this one in particular I I also really wanted to explore more of a a folky electronic sound so there's some stuff on there that's very lo-fi electronic and it's nice and slow and meditative so there's um i think it's across the graveyard by royksop uh that's a pretty good one to to really be listening to but we,
2: we love roichsop remind me F- fantastic song
3: yeah oh yeah it's so good i love that song so much i i i mean i love Royksop in general but that particular song really was speaking to me while writing this and uh, I put together a soundtrack for it. If you Google, or if you go to Spotify and type the title in, it'll pop up. And uh, actually, if you buy the book, there's a QR code. You scan the QR code, it'll open the soundtrack for you in uh, Spotify, if you use Spotify.
1: Oh, that's really cool. Excellent.
2: Just Thanks. a little FYI, because Mr. Cigar here is a very fancy guy. Just to throw <laughs> out there, Dito Von Teese did a collaboration of Royxoppe. Really? Yeah, it's on a vinyl. I think it's called Music to Seduce By. I bought it, but it's not nearby. But yeah, they they did a little collaboration together. That's
3: pretty awesome. I didn't know that.
2: You know what? I better fact check myself because (laughs) all of a sudden I'm starting (laughs) to doubt that. But yeah, I mean,
1: come on. Wow. Well, we'll 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 keep moving along while he fat chicks. Sweet. But uh, no, that's really cool. I like that you have your your playlist on Spotify, so that way people can go and listen. And um, absolutely, uh, thumbs up on the Fleetwood Mac because I I love them. So big big points, big brownie points there. Um, (laughs) So um, obviously, you know, themes that you're exploring are is the fears. Uh, what did you want to accomplish with this collection?
3: I wanted to really stretch my legs a little bit with uh, exploring different genre. Um, you know, I you mentioned before the uh, Kelly Watch the Stars is a little more of a science fiction story. Um, full Understanding, the one about the the burden of knowledge, is probably you could also maybe make the argument that that's a bit of a science fiction story as well. So I really wanted to explore psychological horror which um, I think could be found in Apple Valley. That's the story that I had. I didn't plot out completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it kind of speaks to the confusion or the, the confusing nature that's in that story. Uh, but I really wanted to touch on some of that 70s anxiety horror, some of that 70s slow burn horror with the novella specifically. And uh, so I, I really, with all of this collection, was just an opportunity to stretch my legs and try different things.
2: So, real quick, I was 75% correct. Dita <laughs> Von T's Soundtrack for Seduction. She collaborated with most of the musicians on it, but it just features Roy K. Sop's Here She Comes Again.
3: Oh. So, uh, who so, else did she collaborate with on it? She
2: actually collaborated with Patrick Collins, Chuck Henry, mm-hmm. and Monarchy. But oh, other cool. folks on the album are Blood Orange, <laughs> Handsome Boy, Brian Ferry, Peggy Lee. So uh brian ferry i yeah. love brian ferry
1: i know i do too i was like what <laughs> yeah brian ferry and
2: todd cherry on johnny and mary oh wow so, i listen
3: to that now now i know yeah. what i'm gonna listen to while i smoke a cigar later
2: <laughs> and get classy guy classy <laughs> soundtrack
3: <laughs> that's awesome thank you for that
1: um I I would love to know, do you have any surprises from writing this collection? Like maybe something you learned, something that, like maybe a new fear you didn't know you had, or?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I was really surprised by, um, people seem to be reacting stronger to the longer stories. Um, So that's really fueling my fire to start my first full-length horror novel. So hearing people's reaction to the longer material Um, is very exciting. So that's the thing that surprised me. I thought, sometimes I think like, readers will get a little ADD, and they, you know, if it keeps going, keeps going, they're gonna be like, oh, I check out of this. Like, that's what I was worried about with the novella, but a few people I've talked to have been like, we didn't want it to end. We wanted it to keep going, we wanted it to be a full novel. So I was like, oh, all right. So that's what's been the biggest surprise to me.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, because conversely, because Michelle and I have been talking about the stories we have read, she really loved your super short three to half pageer about the flyer. Then I haven't read that yeah, one yet. The, the
1: sugar bowl. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was great.
3: <laughs> oh, thank you. I, uh, that one was fun. Yeah, I like. Um, that's actually inspired by an actual sugar bowl that my <laughs> uh, girlfriend's aunt has. So yeah.
1: <laughs> it, well, it, it definitely felt realistic as far as like all the visuals. I'm, I could immediately key in. And just being from the perspective of the fly was just like, it was refreshing. Um, I also actually... Um,
2: literal fly on the wall. A
1: literal. But um, I liked your your take of a different kind of ghost story with all the monsters in support. Um, oh, thank you. You know, the rabbi and um, his wife, the ghost, I yeah. thought was, was, was very cute. And um, it just gave a kind of a different perspective of you know monsters and how you see them and the interaction and just just different um i think one of my there there's one that i cringed on and and i and i have to ask if you've had this personal experience and it was from uh your short story you can't uh you can't walk it back
3: uh i've been very lucky to not have something like that happen but I think we all—I mean, realistically, we've all probably said something or done something mm-hmm. that we either immediately regret or has come back to haunt us in some way. Um, you know, not nothing. Hopefully, nothing like cancel-worthy is in our futures. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think we can all relate to that. That's a pretty strong fear that I think we all have, right? Like, God forbid. Yeah. You know, one of my one of my favorite people, and I—you know—I I mentioned him a couple times, in 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 the past and stuff but like i really love max landis and john landis and john landis was canceled in the 80s i mean this is before they called it canceling but you know something horrible happened on the set of one of his movies and he got ostensibly canceled and then his son accident yeah okay yeah yeah and then um his son max was canceled a few years ago because he was uh, some crazy stuff. He was abusive, like mentally abusive to his girlfriends and stuff and awful things. But, you know, the idea of canceling somebody, if there is true, um, you know, apology, if there's true, uh, what is it, contrition? If, if there is that and the person does try to enact change and try to become a better person, I don't think that there's anything wrong with welcoming a person back, right? Like James Gunn was canceled oh, by yeah. Disney for jokes he made a decade ago about dead babies. So of course, Disney cuts ties, but then it's like, yeah, I hate to break it to you, but he made your best of all the Marvel movies. Like Guardians 2 is a masterpiece from just- Guardians 1. End. Oh, you're like, all right, I'm a Guardians 2 guy. Come I like on. Guardians 1, but I like Guardians 2 better. Like, Like but- soundtrack for both though. Oh, yeah. oh, most definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. I just um I think like it's not okay to cancel Sherman Alexi was canceled, but he's still around. And you know, I The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven is still a fantastic book. HP Lovecraft would be canceled now oh, if yeah. he had the same feelings. You know, I don't think he would if he existed now, but I mean, we we are essentially referring to him as a racist all of the time. And I think really he was just a very insecure, troubled guy. This is a person who needed help and needed guidance. And I think he kind of softened up towards the end a little bit. But he's a person that would be canceled. So I think that's something that we're all afraid of. you know, I guess we just don't do anything too terrible, <laughs> like act <laughs> accordingly, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I'm sure, like, you know, I'm sure there's something in everybody's past that could get them in trouble for something.
2: Yeah. Um, but, you know, oops. even without that, this is kind of my little soapboxy, but, you know, we're a globalized world now, we're all connected, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're all, I hate to say it, we're all guilty of a something. You know, there's a degrees of of guilt, something, you know, uh, as evil as, you know, say something racist versus, you know, buying a product that you maybe, you know, came from a sweatshop or something. So we're all inherently complicit in, you know, uh, something and, you know... uh, I kind of take it at that, you know, there's different degrees of complicity, impact, and your response to it is, you know, different degrees of sincerity and honestness of it. But I don't think, I think it's, we're not, in this globalized world, we're all really together. I think yeah. that's kind of a, one of the, be- something, yeah. it's a nuance that we all have to kind of keep in mind, especially, a, yeah. you know, we're we're no longer in the, um, who, who is it, the 15 minutes of fame, the artist, all of a sudden I forget uh, my pop Andy artist. Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame. We're, we're actually past that, you know, we're all, you know, maybe globally 15 minutes famous, but we're all within our bubbles and circles, infinitely famous. And, right. you know, there's always going to be something that will crop back up that ranges from you know cringeworthy to uh to oh wow I actually you know and again the response to that you're you know the show hey you know what uh I did something bad I've owned it I've done other things since then you know I think a lot of people don't look at that nuance you know a lot of people yeah. think if you've done an error in the past you are still beholden to that and mm-hmm. yeah I don't
3: know I agree. Anyway, I agree. Should, you know, should a writer who writes women, I'm, I'm on the Men Writing Women Reddit because I'm just like deathly afraid that I'll make a mistake like that. So I try to learn as much from that awful writing as possible.
2: She boobily walked into the room. Right.
3: <laughs> right. Like Stephen King literally uses Jehoobies at one point and, is, and it's like, dude, like you're still a master, but my God. So like the last thing I want to do is to ever make a mistake like that yeah you yeah. know or to do something like that and I, I know teachers here on Long Island who have had issues where they've said something and parents get involved and then that's that um and they're they're all of a sudden their tenure becomes in jeopardy by the way I don't believe in tenure I'm like one of the few teachers who does not believe in the concept of tenure I think it's bs but mm-hmm. nevertheless um it's a scary world and it's there's something for everyone. Like you said, there's something we can be gotten for anything.
1: Yeah, I just like, why, like
3: no, I'm sorry. No, please. No, no, Go ahead. Um, most of the sales of my book come from Amazon.
0: <laughs> Is <laughs>
3: Amazon a great company? No, it's owned by Lex Luthor. So like, I can't, you know, I, I'm not gonna say that like, oh, I'm taking my book off Amazon
2: as we we're saying earlier, we're, we're all kind of complicit in this, you know, Amazon right. is integrated into our life. We could sit there and shout, Hey, you know, shop your indie bookstore. And, you know, we mm-hmm. could do all that stuff, but still at the end of the day, there are still inescapable, mar- I'm going to say in quotes, market forces, but I say that in quotes, because replace market with something else we're, mm-hmm. we're all kind sure. of entwined into something of different degrees of complacency. Yeah. It's true. And it and, is, and- that is a scary thing. It is, and there's... there's Almost as the scary as book- zombies in elevators. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a <the> perfect segue. <laughs> that was
3: good. That was really good. Yeah, Elevator of the Dead.
0: Uh-huh. That's, yes. the, uh,
3: that's, that's, that's the one that the, the podcast did the production of, and um, it's really... I'm, I'm very proud of that. He did a really beautiful job, um, but... That it, could be well, a you- good
2: short film. It, it really oh, could. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I, oh, I meant- cool. Surprising, it's not the protagonist, it's the 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 businesswoman who definitely Tina. is, <laughs> Tina, who's, who's trapped in the eighties still, because oh, yeah, yes. the, the, the shoulder pads sold yeah. it. It's always the little <laughs> tiny details in a, in a story that sell it. Your, your, <laughs> your longer novella one, you actually have a lot of little small details in there that, you know, can be taken one of two ways. You know, there's a, a scene where, um, Shosh, you know, uh, is, you know, doing some teaching with, um, with the, the young lady and all of a sudden her name escapes me. That's terrible. I'm a terrible podcast host. Uh, Shoshana. No, no, I said Shoshana. I said oh, Shoshana. Oh. The person that she's teaching. The main oh, Royce. Bruce. Royce. 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 And, you know, she, they're, they're going over ancient, you know, history. You mm-hmm. know, like, you know, old, old, old antiquity history. And the line is something like, she, she, she really put herself into it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it could be taken one of two ways. One, oh, yeah, she's really getting into it. But two... No, there's some foreshadowing here because yes. she was in it. So you have a couple moments like that where you pepper some, not quite double speak, but definitely double meaning and stuff. So those instances plus shoulder pads.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and it was it. It's those type of details that give you some some interesting visuals and kind of that deeper concept of here. Here's a woman who's you know, goes to work, even the guy, you know, he's he's talking about how he's having to work extra hours. He's got a new, new baby. Um, his wife's gonna be upset with him. And it's that corporate America. It was a great comment about corporate America and how you get so wound up and you forget about life and everything else. And here's this woman who goes to work every day. She's not even in the world anymore. She's still in these, these big ass 80s shoulder pads that she thinks are still in fashion. And it's almost like she never leaves that building. It, yeah. it, it really is kind of coming into that mentality. And those are, like Nick has said, you know, it's those little details that give you those little kernels to keep thinking about that flesh out that story without really telling everything you know throwing out all your little darlings in there to you know which we all all struggle with is that yeah you know how much research how much knowledge do you give how much do you kind of nod to and let your reader pick that up yeah
3: yeah and uh i'm glad you you mentioned the the idea of giving oneself over to corporate america and stuff and it just I, I see it so much, even, even working in a school, people sacrifice their you know, free time and then they give everything they can. And I, you know, I, my whole thing is like, yes, I love, I love doing what I do, but I, at the end of the day, at 3.30, I'm out. Like my, <laughs> my, my job life is over, I'm back to being Rob, and mm-hmm. that's that. And I think that there's an important distinction to that. You know, like his wife and his kid are home yeah. during the zombie apocalypse,
0: <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. He
3: should be home with them. Yeah. Um,
2: even, though, even though it's a zombie story, I, I can't help but detect in the DNA a little bit of Die Hard in that story.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I, was yeah, yeah I think that's too. fair. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely- Yeah, die, I, was, die hard, I was thinking that too. Aside mm-hmm. from being the greatest
2: Christmas movie ever, it is, is a true 80s corporate America film. Yeah. With is- explosions. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah. it's literally a, a corporate takeover done mm-hmm. through the lens of a robbery mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. basically um, it Hans Gruber is the best villain in the history of cinema so
1: oh yeah definitely um speaking of you kind of you know shifting gears right into one of your other stories that I definitely wanted to to uh give a, a couple of minutes to and that is Nathan the teacher's lounge <laughs> <laughs> So kind of speaking to, yeah. you know, giving yourself over uh, to your career and, you know, going past your your expiration date um, was definitely, uh, that was a great story. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. Def- very much enjoyed that. And I thought, yes, and he's a teacher. Let's see how much of this, <laughs> how much well, is, he is he they- talking about real life in that one? You know?
3: <laughs> so quite a bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I, I, I worked with, I, I did a leave replacement in a, in a district here on Long Island on the East End, and the, the villainous character in that story, Mrs. McCauley, is very much so based on her. Um, she was a woman who refused to help our special needs students. Uh-huh. Um, she refused to do extra help. She refused to do much of anything. So, I took it upon myself to do as much extra help as I possibly could. And -hmm. she would get mad at me about it. But my approach to teaching is if my students need me, it's my job to help them. Mm -hmm. So I don't get it. So she was a monster and she had been teaching for about 35 years at that point. In New York, you can retire after about 25 comfortably.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: 10 years after the expiration date, she's still teaching now. And that was two years ago. So she's 37 years in. Time for her to go. (laughs) And so I wanted to create a villain based on her Mm -hmm. because she was a monster. Um, And uh, yeah, when you start teaching, they tell you don't go in the teacher's lounge. Don't spend time in the teacher's lounge because it's where all the toxicity is in the school and it's all the negativity. And unfortunately, when I was working on this collection, uh, the teacher's lounge that I was spending time in did have a gnat problem. Uh, it was disgusting, and, and normally, like, and, and the custodians in this particular school just did not do a good job. The school I'm in now, our custodians are literally the best. I, they're they're kings to me, but um, these guys did nothing about the nat problem. And I, unfortunately, I had to spend a lot of time in there, so I was getting a lot of the toxicity from the other teachers, and I just channeled it into that story as much as I could. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, nats, ugh, they are such gross little. Ugh. I don't I don't even know how you they came in there it was mm-hmm. so gross but hopefully it's not what happens in the story that drew
0: them
1: well um we've talked uh, we've touched on a number of of the stories in the collection and would love to to ask what do you feel is the standout story that you'd recommend readers you know read first as a way of kind of hooking them into the rest of the book and by an extension you're writing at large Mm -hmm.
2: okay uh
3: i think that um the final story in the collection miscellaneous ephemera plays with a lot of uh a lot of themes and a lot of concepts that i'm very into and and living i'm living in that space a little more right now with the things that i'm i'm working on i also think um the novella is one that i'm i'm particularly proud of i really i really love uh her infernal name in there and so I would say that either the the novella at the front or the miscellaneous ephemera on the uh, back end. I think both are stories that I think would hopefully hook uh, a new reader.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I before we move on to your other uh, collection, uh, I do want to ask you. I've noticed that uh, resting hollow makes an appearance throughout uh, through some of the stories, and just. Uh, would love to hear a little bit more. Are you kind of doing the James Chambers uh, approach with kind of developing that fictional town that uh, you know maybe there'll be an actual novel on at some point?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm definitely doing that. I I love the idea of my own um, sandbox that I could just keep playing in. Mm-hmm. And Resting Hollow is very much inspired by Sleepy Hollow, which is my favorite place on the planet. Um, I've been going there since I was a child. My dad's family is originally from that area. Um, So I've kind of got it in the blood a little bit. I also really love Washington Irving. So I wanted to create kind of um, my own version of Sleepy Hollow in sort of like the Westchester area of New York, um, which is like my dream place to live. I can never afford it. It's like 900 grand for a house on the low end there. So (laughs) that's not the question. But um, it's just... I love the idea of living in a town where there's so much folklore and there's so many different things. Long Island, I'm very lucky here. We have a very strong Native American tradition and folklore. We have um, sort of Dutch folklore here. We have Italian folklore here. It's it's very mixed. And Resting Hollow is very much, very much so borrows from different things on Long Island. know you guys know the amityville horror obviously took place here and um it's that's very much inspired by native american folklore as well uh you know they they attributed a lot of that to what happened uh there i don't know if i believe that per se but um but nevertheless long island inspires my writing but i transpose everything to that resting hollow town and Mm -hmm. there are other things that i'm playing with i'm sort of building out that area so there's Two sister towns in that area that I'm working on. One of them appears in a YA novel that I'm working on, and there's a a, a First Nations reservation in that area as well, which gets referenced in one of the stories, "The Arborist," um, in the collection. They they talk mm-hmm. a little bit about um, you know a Native American uh, elder that that does some work with them, and uh, but yeah, overall, I just I love that area and I love having my own little. Universe, where things can take place if I need them to
2: well, yeah, let me ask this what, what sort of challenges are obstacles or things do you have to deal with when making your own kind of fictional geography and I throw this out there that you know all the more iconic fictional geographies were either a written and created in pre internet times or b if they 've been created after internet times their settings are pre-internet times, you know, it's like, you know, to have like uh, a Miskatonic or, you know, Stephen King's, you know, Castle Rock or, you know, even uh, uh, uh William Pug- Pugmire, you know, he has mm-hmm. his area in Cascadia and stuff. You know, these are like, we were talking a little bit earlier about interconnectivity and whatnot, but, you know, these are all, you know, towns that are dissociated from everything else. It's like, if you go back and watch like Phantasm two and three, you know, there's these abandoned towns that, you know, could not really exist nowadays, I guess. So I guess that's kind of my question to you is, is, you know, in a post internet post all connected thing, you know, how is that, is that a problem for you or is that something you actually incorporate in or not an issue?
3: No, I don't, I don't find it to be much of an issue. I, I do, in terms of, you know, building the actual town, I do have the town's layout in my head. I should draw it out, really. If I was a better author or a smarter person, I would draw out the town myself, uh, just so I know where everything is and the general uh, geographic location of certain things. But I do, I don't worry too much about people thinking it's, you know, searching it up or or finding it online. I, I was listening to an interview where, an author, I think it was, um, I can't remember who it was, but she was talking about how she's created a, a literary uh, universe as well. And her editor was like, I can't find where this is. What, like, I keep typing in, I'm like, where is this? It's in Seattle or outside of Seattle.
2: She's like, I made it up, it's fake. So like, I guess, I, yeah, I don't really worry about it. When What's I that? read when I read uh, James Chambers as in uh, Engines of Sacrifice for his next port, I thought it was a yeah. real place. I kept like googling yeah. it. I'm like, yeah. is he spelling it wrong? I know it's in Long Island, but <laughs> and I, I think I emailed him a flat. I asked him. He's like, yeah, I totally made that up, dude. That's that's my <laughs> that's my my sandbox. Like, uh, yeah. it, but but once I found that out, it fascinated me even more because when you really get into someone's writing, it does open up that rabbit hole of wikipedia and stuff like that mm-hmm. but if it's a fictional place and you can't do that i think it almost opens up even kind of more imaginative possibilities i can't go on wikipedia now and just say oh yeah that's what it looks like oh that satiates my curiosity it's i don't know holy smokes right. i have to dig myself deeper into what this person's writing to kind of find out more and have it, you ever oh i'm sorry where were you going to say Michelle?
1: I was just going to say that's actually kind of nice because even though you can be in a technology uh time period the interaction has to become a non-technology uh reaction to the that locale which is actually very interesting.
3: and and it's actually perfect that you said it because this uh, i'm going to ask you guys a question that piggybacks off what michelle was just saying have you ever seen a fictional town represented and given a definitive location and been disappointed with where it was, where they put it, my thoughts immediately go to Silent Hill.
1: Mm. Being
3: told that Silent Hill is in Virginia? Uh, no. To me, it's always been upstate New York near near Cayuga Lake. But that's... I don't know. I, when, when somebody gives me a definitive location in reality of where this thing is specific, so with such specificity, it takes mm. me out of it a little bit.
2: Yeah, you know, I don't know if I've been disappointed, but I've had to do mental gymnastics. I know... I don't know if it's the case anymore, but big Resident Evil fan, I mm-hmm. swore I read somewhere that Raccoon City was in Colorado. And I don't know, I, don't, I may have misread that, but for the longest time I thought Raccoon City was in Colorado. And I, I just couldn't perform the mental gymnastics to think of this, this city that sometimes is a small city, sometimes it's a big city, regardless has some giant bio labs underneath it, in the middle of Colorado. And
1: um, Oh, that's interesting because I always took it to be on the East Coast somewhere.
2: That's definitely a west coast thing uh art anyway that, that's the only that's the only thing i could think of that's kind of in that ballpark uh silent hill i've always thought silent hill was just one of those kind of magic towns where you know you get into the psychology of it's kind of where you want it to be so it's same same yeah. so yeah I, I love my silent that's hill fun. by the way
3: oh yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> i'm waiting for Konami to actually do something with that franchise that would be a value
2: yeah, I, you know what from what i hear Konami has more or less exited maybe my information's a little out of date this is from a year or two ago has more or less exited video games to concentrate on like gambling machines over in japan just because it makes them the most money i mean they've lost a lot of their talent like the yeah. the metal gear guy is off doing his own thing and stuff like that i mean you know castlevania only really exists in you know an anime now and stuff and which mm-hmm. is unfortunate because you know kanami i mean they gave us you know silent hill and uh castlevania you know so uh uh dance dance revolution <laughs> 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 I, i'm trying to think if i've been like really dis- i mean yeah, the, the Raccoon City is the only thing I can think of. Now, and again, I'm probably starting to doubt my memory, so I'm probably going to have to take a cue from Kelly Watch the Stars and go under hypnosis and find out why did I think it was in Colorado? Or maybe I just <laughs> instinctively thought it was a Colorado. I mean, it's called Raccoon City. Where are you going to put that? You can't put that in, you know, Florida. No, you're right. <laughs> it would be called you're Alligator right. City. <laughs>
3: <laughs> 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 I always thought it was. I always thought it was an East Coast city as well. I always saw Raccoon City as being in in Pennsylvania, personally.
1: Yeah, or or Maryland or something. And and Maryland, I'm yes. I'm not from the East Coast. I mean, I'm I'm a California girl. So, yes. um, you know, I think I think for me, if there was a fictional town that was set in the West Coast somewhere, and then I realized, you know, I probably would be kind of disappointed as well because, yeah. like. You know, I, I definitely, you know, I'll see some city portrayed in a movie and I'll be excited because I'll, I'll recognize it sure. and I'll feel a bigger connection to it.
2: Raccoon City is a small industrialized city located in Arclay County, an isolated mountain county in the Midwestern United States. Wow. We were all wrong? Well, Colorado's kind oh, of Midwest, kind of. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you're I mean, right. Wow, closer oh, to man. east coast. <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. Wow, but wow. like, but still, I can't phantom that city being like in an...
3: ah <laughs> weird. That's so interesting. On that note, sorry, yeah, I'm just blown away right now.
2: Let's let's talk about your second anthology real quick. Why don't you give us the skinny on um. People, a horror anthology about love lost life and things that go bump in the night.
3: Yeah, that was my uh, first collection. That was about, uh, that's the one that I, I wrote after my dad passed away. And
0: Aww.
3: yeah, that was a, a very difficult time and I was processing a lot of emotion and I put it all into the different stories in there. There's one in there that's very much so about him. There's actually another story in the new collection that's sort of my way of saying goodbye to him. Uh, but the first collection was me just seeing if I could do it, seeing if I could write something. Um, and I, I put together that collection and it was fun. And I'm happy with it. I would like I've actually gone back and rewritten a few of the stories in there just for fun. And I'm much happier with them now. But I don't think anybody who writes would say like, oh, not, I don't like it now that I've rewritten it. I think anybody would want to go back and edit themselves and change things and whatever else.
2: You know, funny, because there's, there's a couple schools of thought about that. Now, I'll, I'll throw it out there because George Lucas in the original trilogy is a good example of that between the whole, this is the movie as is, the ownership of the greater audience of, no, that's my movie. Because once, you know, once something interests the public, you don't control it anymore. But on the other hand, you know, it's still his, his story. What's to stop you to go back and say, you know what, I want, now granted, I don't think he made things better, but that's aside the point for him to make things better for himself by CGI touch up here insert a character there. I mean, what is the mediation of that, especially for someone, you know, you've gone back and retouched up your stories. Is the original now the no longer the definitive the new version is. What about folks that say no, I like this version better. it's more more raw because because my next question is going to be with would you consider this collection more raw and your new collection more refined? So I guess you know we'll put that as a giant umbrella of questions too yeah
3: yeah, I think the the new collection a little more raw actually raw oh. in terms of like a, um, maybe raw in the sense that they are uglier. Some okay. of the stories yes, are, are, have a little more ugliness to them. Um, but what were you saying? I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're good. Oh, Keep okay. going. I, uh, yeah, so like I would say that, but I, I think the first collection, I was sort of like playing it a little safer because I didn't quite know what I could do yet. What am I allowed to do? Of course, you could do whatever you want, but I didn't. I wasn't fully aware of that. I didn't want to tell a story that upset people. I didn't want to do anything like that. So I just wanted to tell very personal stories. Whereas with this one, it's more me like, okay, I've done the personal thing. Now let's do what I really want to do and just try to scare people or may- maybe get them to think just a teeny tiny bit about things. Um, so this is definitely more of my, uh, the second collection is more raw and and it's, it's like angry John Carpenter. It's they live John Carpenter when he's pissed. <laughs> And he wants to talk about something. That's kind of what I was feeling when I put the second one together. But the first one is very, it's so powered by emotion in every way. And um, that it was difficult to write. I, I, I have a hard time looking at the story that I wrote for my dad because I, I cry when I read it Aww. now. Because it's just very tough for me. My dad, was he would be my biggest fan if he was still around. And he's like been my biggest cheerleader my whole life. So for me to have written these two collections with him not in the world anymore is tremendously difficult. But everything I do is for him in my head or in, you know, in print. So, you know, I I like to kind of do that, too. But I think um, exploring the material from a personal perspective opened my eyes that I could really and, and the reaction that I got from people reading it helped me. Uh, come to terms with, okay, I could do this, like, a little more aggressively now. I could push ahead with going into darker territory in the second collection.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, and back to the question of revising and editing, you know, oh, taking yeah, an original piece and reshaping it. I mean, your, your kind of thoughts on that, you, you, you know, uh, improving the text, making more of a definitive version, or maybe the challenges of, you know, hey, this is my, uh know my babies but i do have to make them uh you know better you know is it kind of hard to do or maybe it's a little easier like you know what dang it if i did that the first time around boom done
3: yeah i think uh if somebody was was to say you know oh hey this is what i had first i like this better than what you've done to it Mm -hmm. i'd be very okay with that like whatever i do once it's out in the world it's not mine Anymore, like we just kind of said, right? Like people take ownership of certain things. Like if Alan Moore was to go back and change Watchmen now, I would probably, I would still buy it because I'd want to see what he would do. It will never happen, but <laughs> I will always have, I'll always have my original. So if I were to change a story, which I have, one of the stories that I is in the first collection is called What Would Batman Do? I've gone back and given that a substantial rewrite and made it scarier than a little more intense and a little grittier. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's way better than it was before. However, if people are happy with how things are, don't like what I change, then I, I will hope that they still have the original. I, d- yeah. I, try, I did my version. You know, they can do whatever they want. They can enjoy it however they want.
2: Yeah. He takes the uh, the Blade Runner approach to cuts. You can have the international cut, the director's cut, the producer's <laughs> cut, the, the 80s cut, the definitive, whatever the last cut is. There you go. <laughs> yeah. A smorgasbord of editions. Hey, perfect.
1: <laughs> so um, I know we've been um, chatting for quite a while and it's been, um, been really having a great time with this. I am very curious because music is, you key very much into the music. I would love to hear your thought process with regards to these two collections about how you built them. Because I know as a person that really in, enjoys music, like I will listen to music always in album form. I mm-hmm. I very rarely will pull out a song and just listen to that one all the time. There There, 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 there is one or two exceptions and he's <laughs> laughing because he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> but generally speaking, I will listen to the album front to back. So thinking in that kind of, can you talk about your thought process about how you put your stories together? Was it very deliberate? Were you looking at what you wanted your readers to kind of emotionally feel as they were going through each piece? Did you, how do you do that?
3: I, I always wanted to start with the novella. that was important to me. I went back and forth with my editor about that a little bit, but I, I wanted the novella to set the tone for the collection and, and I hope it does. I think it does. And I, I the sprinkling of things going on in the novella are also almost like a cascade of, of of kind of through everything else, right? So some of the materials there, and then some of it appears again later on. But I think in terms of um, setting the tone, I wanted things in a certain order. So a couple things changed as we went through the editing process. So like support, for example, and panels are back to back in the collection, specifically to be a palette cleanser for what came before Mm -hmm. and what comes after. And that was all my editor. I wanted support in the middle, but I didn't know where panels should go and he was just like let's just put them back to back the two like kind of sweeter funnier stories or whatever so in terms of wanting to take the reader on a journey i wanted to kind of have one final gut punch at the end and that's why i wanted miscellaneous ephemera at the end instead of the final goodbye which i think logically title wise makes the most sense Mm -hmm. but um, mis-
2: miscellaneous ephemera also is a great ending title as well because miscellaneous it's you know miscellaneous the stuff tacked
1: on at the end it has like an appendix awesome. type title yeah to I, it. I was thinking more appendix yeah
2: yeah I oh mean, nice yeah, yeah no great. i totally think miscellaneous ephemera is a i want actually wanted to think of a question to ask about that I just but there you go i think it's a great ending title for a yeah. story
3: yeah sweet thank you And uh, that actually leads into, uh, so in the first collection, there was a story that I wrote right at, it was the very last story that I I wrote uh, timeline wise, and it was going to be in this collection. And then I was like, I'm gonna put this one in the first collection. And it's way darker than any of the other stories in the other collection. And that I wanted to be sort of a teaser into this collection where I was gonna be going darker. And so ending in the way that I do, I want people to sort of feel like okay that was ugly <laughs> and so I guess we start ugly we end ugly and in between there's a beautiful cascade of emotion and, and fear and um, a little bit of love a little bit of sweetness along the way but that's the human experience right so it's we come into the world it's ugly we leave the world it's ugly and in between there's the striation of everything in between
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we have good days we have bad days yeah and sometimes we have gnats in the teacher's lounge, so. as <laughs> <Sometimes> we do. <laughs> kind, of, kind of a
2: fun question here. Between the two collections, aside from Kelly Watch the Stars, is there any other like Easter eggs that you've popped in your uh, writing that you're kind of proud of? Or any things that you've put in there that you're excited that people catch on? Or anyone's undiscovered yet?
3: Hmm. Uh, there is a, a little bit of a nod. I love this, this one band, uh, Car Seat Headrest. I'm a big Car Seat Headrest fan. I love them. Um, one of the stories in the new collection was originally called Destroyed by Hippie Powers, which is a name of a Car Seat Headrest <laughs> song. So I changed it to something else. And it's very much about um, the earth reclaiming uh, its own power and coming back and, and taking things back. And that is, is kind of a, the acknowledgement to that, that band. So that's like one little Easter egg. But also there's, um, there's something that's... I have a, a story in an anthology coming out. I believe it's uh, I want to say it's like January maybe or December. I don't remember. But I referenced it's the first mention of the sister town to Resting Hollow. So that's sort of an Easter egg. And then there's other things that I've written since then. It's just, there's a lot of intersection between those two areas. So that's sort of the beginning of an Easter egg. And they kinda, it set the tone in the first two books of Resting Hollow in that area and Apple Valley and stuff. Now we're going to the other town, which uh, Nick, I think if you read that story, you will like it as well. If you're a video game fan, it's very I, much inspired by something. Is this the
2: one that's coming out in a future anthology?
3: Yeah, it's going to be in dark inks. Uh, the half that you see.
2: All right, we'll we'll put a pin in that because we'll we'll come up to the end of the show here in a second, and we'll be able to talk about your upcoming projects. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I, I like it when I find some author Easter eggs out there, especially yeah. if it's a pop culture reference that isn't isn't a beat to the bush pop culture reference, but a, a nice. You know, subtle one because I'm really into like French pop culture. That's you know, uh, why why listen to pop music when I like, listen to weird industrial music? You know, stuff like yeah. that. So so when I uh, you know pick up on stuff like that, I get excited. Um, oh yeah,
3: I, so. and uh, there is there is one also in one of the stories called um, uh, the Nebulous Day. I take a character from a Brett Easton Ellis novel, and he gets mentioned in it. His uh, he a character from The Rules of Attraction uh-huh. gets referenced in that. Mm-hmm. and someone else mentioned it, it's a character from um the same name of a character from deus Ex, the the, the newer deus x games and i didn't know that i i only have the one deus Ex game i haven't even played it yet but he was like yeah that's that guy's name too was that a reference to that and i was like if you want it to be sure
2: oh, on that note so yeah so tell us so what's what's on the horizon for you so you've got a, a story appearing in a new anthology and what else well that and what else
3: Yes. Uh, I have two stories, uh, no, three different stories out in anthologies right now. Uh, my story, Hookman's End, closes out the Hookman and Friends anthology, which was a lot of fun to play with that uh, sort of folklore um, and, you know, the that, that type of, uh, what do you call that, urban legend type mm-hmm. character. Um, I also have a story called A Ghost Named Grady in the Coffin Blossoms anthology from Jolly Horror. That's more of a sort of a YA middle grade type story. So I'm, I'm really proud that I was able to kind of put together sort of a family-friendly spooky story. Um, I have uh, the one that I mentioned, the one that's going to be in Dark Inks, The Half, you, the half That You See. Um, that one is called uh, Falling Asleep in the Rain. And then I have another story that's going to be in a Dark Ink anthology. As of right now, it's called Unburied. That's probably my favorite story of mine that I've ever written um it's called uh for the gods and i just really love my lead character in that he is just i want to like protect him and hug him because i just he's just so sweet he's such a sweet guy i love him um and i also have a story out in um i I did a a sort of a modern take on the rip van winkle mythology and that is in i can't remember the name of that anthology
0: right now i feel so bad
3: (laughs) Sorry, I don't remember the name of it, but it's uh, Valerie Willis is the editor of that one. And uh, it's all about um, fables and uh, stuff like that. So I I was originally going to do a comedic version of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, but that story is way too near and dear to me to ever like turn into a comedy. Like I just, it, I'm too protective of it. So I did Rip Van Winkle instead.
2: Mm-hmm. I gotta ask, are you a big fan of the Disney uh animated short of uh sleepy hollow
3: yeah i like it it's, it's good it's not my favorite adaptation but i do like it a lot
2: okay mm-hmm. yeah I, as a kid i grew up with the cartoon version of it yeah oh yeah mm-hmm. that no that's I, I, that
3: one i like a lot i don't like the tim burton one um but there's there's a really good live action version with jeff goldblum where he plays like about crane that's my favorite one
1: <laughs> i could see that i could see that he's
3: perfect he's so perfect <laughs> it's crazy um but yeah, so I have those things, and I have, um, I, I'm in a second revision on a young adult science fiction horror novel uh, that I'm working on in my MFA program currently, and uh, I have two other YA novels. Uh, one of them I've got about 30 pages done, the other one I've got about 10 pages done, and I'm, I'm hoping to, to um, I'm hoping to, to do something with the YA novel sooner rather than later. Uh, I'm happy with it, but it's not quite where I need it to be. And uh, around Christmas time, because I do not like Christmas, I will be starting my first full-length horror novel. Uh, and I'm really excited about it because every time I've told people about it, they cringe and they get really awkward. And it tells me that I'm on the right track.
2: Excellent. Um, well, with all these projects and stuff coming up, I guess you know, the next question would be how do folks, you know, stay abreast of your activities? What's your social media? What's your website? How can folks keep tabs on you in a not so stalkery fashion? Yeah,
3: (laughs) please stalk me. Um, (laughs) you can find me at uh, www.spookyhousepress.com. Um, I, you know, I blog there from time to time. You can join our mailing list, whatever. Uh, on, I'm bigger on, I'm bigger. I'm more into Instagram than I am any other social media platform, but I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Robert O'Tone, R-O-B-E-R-T-O-T-T-O-N-E. So it's the same for Instagram and uh, Twitter, but I'm way more involved on Instagram. I post ridiculous story stuff all the time. It's stupid. I love it.
2: Any, any fancy pictures of you looking dapper, smoking a cigar?
3: Yeah, there there are a few dapper photos of cigar smoking, for sure. <laughs> my my most dapper picture, I did a I it was very cute. I, I got to sign books at my local Barnes and Noble. They were really cute and called me and asked me to do it. And I was like, I almost cried. It was really sweet. So Aww. like my favorite picture is I'm I'm in there. I have the mask on, of course. I have it's that's like my favorite picture. It's just it makes me so happy. It was such a really fun, sweet, exciting day and it was just really cool. So that's my favorite picture on my Instagram.
1: Oh, <laughs> that, that is really sweet. And nice that they, they invited you to come and do a signing. That's great.
3: Yeah. They were really it, like, I, I can't say enough good things about our, our local Barnes and Noble stores. I've, they've, they've all put the book on the shelf and they've all prominently featured their local author sections and their horrors. They have a new horror section now, um, which is super exciting and uh i'm i'm there and it's weird because it's like i said to my girlfriend i was like who am i going to be near on the shelf and she was like well O and then p and i was like chuck polonix and chuck polonix next to my my book i was like
0: "Ah, this is
1: weird
3: (laughs) (laughs) so that was really that was a weird moment that was really weird
1: oh i bet to 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 see your book in a in a mainstream bookstore. Yeah. Just awesome. We're we're still waiting oh for God. that day. <laughs> yeah.
2: Since we're uh, academic writers, we might be waiting a little long for that, but we'll get yeah. there. Yeah. But, but there is something about once you, uh, I think once you sign your first book to someone, I think that's like the milestone to say, you know what, I'm an author now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, there's people out there, they'll say, you could write anything and be an author. And there's truth to that. But you know, I think there's, I think we all have these internal milestones that help define us as an author. And I think one Mm -hmm. of those milestones is someone had my book and I signed it for them because now, now you have like, it's, it's a very tangible. Now you have a personal connection to that person. They now have not Mm -hmm. just your book, but your scribble on it, a a shared moment, a shared everything. I mean, that's not something a lot of people can have.
3: It's true. You're very right. You're absolutely right. And I, a friend of mine, uh, I was I was over at a friend's house last night and they I've done a few readings and stuff for this book, a lot of promotion and whatnot. And um, uh, my friend is in the Air Force and he's a recruiter for the Air Force. And he was in his office with the other recruiters, his bosses and stuff. And they were all listening to one of my readings. It was like 10 people all huddled around a computer listening to one of my readings. And I was like really touched like by the support. I thought that was really cute of them. So I, uh, his boss was like, oh, I can't find the book. He's like, the libraries, it's out at the libraries. People have been taking it out. Like, I can't find it at the, the Barnes & Noble sold out. Like, well, I want a book. So I was like, I have one in the car. So I signed it to him. And I wrote to Master Sergeant. And then I wrote, and he was a Marine. Now he's in the Air Force. I wrote Semper Fi. I was like, thank you for the support, Semper Fi, and signed it. Like, But there is, like you're saying, there is that really sweet personal connection that you have with someone like that. And... That was yeah that's weird too it's like signing people's books like that's bizarre to me it,
2: it is because it, there's also that little moment of uh, imposter syndrome or self-doubt like you, you actually want me to sign this uh, a couple of years ago because uh, i write for a tiki magazine and they, they their very first issue they launched and they did a big launch party at a tiki bar in la the tonga hut they're like hey you want to come and sign copies of the magazine i'm like I just did a little article and I'm, you know, I'm not learning a big, but you know, I get there, Michelle's there, think. there's a freaking line of people, you know, that, the awesome. editors there, the cover artists there and, and the mead who just wrote one article and people bring in their magazines for me to sign. And it was very surreal and at the same time. Like, I don't know why you want me to sign the cover of this, but Hey, cool. And it, yeah. it, it, it's a very, you know, neat thing. And, you know, and since so Michelle and I, you know, we're in each other's books and stuff like that, we always do kind of the cutesy thing, like, will you sign my book? <laughs> we just turned to <laughs> each other. Because, you know, it personalizes our collaborations and stuff together as well.
3: I love that. And, and it's so sweet. I love that. I like, like, it's so cute, that the line of people and the cover artist and everything. That's so cool. I love that. Mm. Yeah.
1: Hopefully, we'll be able to go back to that at some point. Uh, that was pre-COVID, <laughs> yes. um, yeah. and it was in LA, in the, the height of summer, it was so hot. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun.
3: The but, only time I've been to LA was during the summer, and I, I was dying.
0: It was so <laughs> insanely
1: yeah. hot. It, yeah, it, it was, I think it was, what, a year ago? Was it a year ago? Two years ago. Two, was it yeah, last it was, it
2: summer, was it was the summer before? But, oh, man. And, of course, the tiki bar was packed, so you couldn't even go in it. You're confined to outside in 100-degree dusk What? And I love dusk. But, Mm -hmm. you know, even then, I'm in my Hawaiian shirt. I'm dressed for the occasion, but it don't (laughs) matter. (laughs) Phew. Yeah. That's so cool.
1: (laughs) Now, I I do have to ask uh, before we, we sign off. And, Robert, are you your native New Yorker then?
3: Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: Alrighty. I asked because you don't have like a New York accent. <laughs>
2: he hasn't, he hasn't told us to take off yet. Or uh, That was a terrible uh, presentation. Yeah, what, what the hell was that?
3: <laughs> you want me to talk about water and bagels <laughs> and uh, pizza? Yeah, my, my dad was a DJ. Uh-huh. Uh, so he, you know, he was on the radio and stuff. So like as a kid, he got that out of me. He, uh, I, I don't have any kind of accent. He always taught me to, to speak you know uh not regional or whatever um and also i i think long island and new york accents are like the worst accent <laughs> um personally they're so ugly sounding um that's just me as a new yorker i can say that i think but <laughs> it's, it's it's rough so i i do everything i can to to not sound like i'm uh you know, watering my lawn on a, a Sunday morning with a hose. Like that's like a thing people do here. It's ridiculous. But uh yeah, I, I do my best to not sound like that.
1: Well you you you've done an admirable job because I was like I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, he's talking about New York and all these ties and commitment and I'm like, but he doesn't sound like a New Yorker. <laughs> he doesn't sound like a
2: character in a spike lee joint. Yeah. Exactly.
3: <laughs> I always think of the the scene in the Twenty Fifth Hour. But... The, the
2: mirror scene, <laughs> uh, that is that that is such a it's such a great scene. It's a heartbreaking scene, but at the same yeah. time, a little comedic. But tr- it sums up the movie. Great movie, one of my favorite Spike Lee films.
3: I think that uh, he got Game and then the Twenty Fifth Hour are my two. That those are my two it, favorites. He got Game is my favorite.
2: I, I have a soft spot for Inside Job, but probably oh, yeah. just because. I'm a big Clive Owen fan. Yeah. And it's just a great heist film. Yeah, Inside Job is great.
1: Now didn't Spike I Lee... met Spike Lee. <gasps> no, I'm sorry,
3: on. I didn't I mean to get... interrupt you. <laughs> I met Spike Lee at a, at a Yankees spring training game. I was with my dad. I was probably Aww. 20 at the time. And uh, we were down in Florida or whatever. And I'm like, I, I see him on the field and nobody's saying anything to him. He was following Derek Jeter on the field with the camera. I don't know what he was doing. But then he goes and he sits um, by the third base uh, dugout. And that was where the Yankees were. They were the opposing team. So I was like, Spike Lee is sitting over there by himself. Nobody is doing anything. He, nobody, I guess, recognizes him. And my dad was like, do you want to go and take a picture? And I was like, it's like with Spike Lee? Like, that's insane. So we go over and my dad goes, hey, Spike. And I was like... <laughs> kidding me man and i go and sit next to him and he shakes my hand and i was like i was like mr lee i just want to say i really love your films and i i said i was especially you know he got game is is really special to me and i just really love your work and he was like thank you so much he was he was very nice but i think he was annoyed that my dad said hey Spike. (laughs) what a good memory though (laughs) yeah. yeah yeah it was fun
1: now, I have to ask, because I, it's been a long time, it was a long time ago that I saw the film, but I, I remember really enjoying it. And I think it's an early Spike Lee. Didn't he do a film called Smoke? Didn't he do a film called Smoke? Where it was set in New York City, and it was a guy that owned um, a, a little shop. And every day he'd go out and take a picture. And it had like all the different, different uh, actors that he kind of worked with. Um, I thought the I name was smoke. I think
2: that sounds familiar. Oh, Wayne. Is Wh- that with Peter Newman and all these other folks? Force Whitaker.
1: Huh, Maybe, I, but I thought that Harvey cut. Kind of, yeah. No, nope, that was it. Okay. Never mind. Wayne, totally different. Wayne
2: Wayne and Paul Oster.
1: Well, anyway. Oh, Paul good, Oster. Yeah. Good film. Paul Oster.
2: Yeah, I love that. Yeah,
3: and that was Spike Lee. No.
1: No, actually, it wasn't. I. <laughs> but it could have been oh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, i was i always love the scene in in the 25th hour with the benson hearst boys
2: they uh-huh. and they're
3: like benson
2: <laughs> before we wrap up any final words anything else uh, to say uh mike is yours it's been awesome talking to you yeah
3: oh i i can't thank you enough for having me on it really means a lot like i it's so weird like in talking about this book with with you know I've done a bit of like a little bit of promotion stuff I only wanted to do podcasts that I actually listen to and that's why I wanted to be on here because I do listen to you guys so it means a lot it's like little it's it's just like it's weird like I've met like po- you know podcast hosts and stuff and I'm like oh my god I actually listen to your show like this is crazy and like a little starstruck kind of thing so I thank you for having me on
2: oh my god I, I don't think okay. anyone's used the word starstruck to describe <laughs> us <laughs>
1: Now no, I'm I love, imposter I syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, but, thank
2: you so much
3: again. I appreciate it.
1: Uh, well, thank you, Robert. It, it, thank you for reaching out. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. And of course, thank you for your support uh, for our show. Um, and also, it means a lot to us.
2: So. And also success for the new book and success for your future endeavors.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. It means a lot.
2: We would like to thank Robert for his time in providing insight into his writing journey as well as discussing in depth both of his collections. Links to Robert's books and his social media are in the show notes. We appreciate Robert's support of our podcast and we wish him much continued success with his collections and upcoming projects.
1: In upcoming events, at Scholars from the Edge of Time, we have a new episode streaming on Thursday, November 26th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And available afterwards for download. In case you missed it, in October, our guest was dark fantasy science fiction writer Janet Joyce Holden. She is the author of the Vampiric Origins of Blood series and the Supernatural Carousel series. Janet's short stories have featured in a number of collections, including 18 Wheels of Horror and Halloween Tales. Link to the show is in the show notes. On episode 34 of H.P. Lovecast, we will discuss two short stories from the new anthology, Wonder and Glory Forever, edited by Lovecraftian scholar Nick Mamatos and published by Dover Publications. This podcast will drop on Sunday, December 6th. Copies of this collection can be purchased at your favorite online booksellers. And on episode 5 of H.P. Lovecast Presents Fragments, Nicholas and I will continue our focus on Nick Mamatas by interviewing him. We will discuss his stories and books, most notably his new anthology, Wonder and Glory Forever. This episode will post on Sunday, December 20th.
2: H.P. Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, And of course, you can email us at hplovecast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. Uh, Both Michelle and I each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to. As always, thank you for listening. Please keep safe and healthy.
0: The tip all da, 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 woody.